read from a few moments ago, Numbers chapter 31. I'm sure you've heard this saying before, revenge is a dish that is best served cold. Revenge is a dish that is best served cold. Now, what that means, of course, is that the sweetest form of revenge is that which is done in the most cold and calculating manner. That revenge that is carefully determined. You know, if you've been hurt by a foe and you think, how could I get them back? And all of us, as uh, image bearers, we, we find the whole concept of revenge something deeply fascinating. It's why Shakespeare wrote Hamlet. We, we're, we're fascinated by a work like that. It's why many people love the Godfather films. You read the Bible if you're sanctified, and throughout there's many instances of revenge that are, are intriguing. Remember Levi and Simeon who got the Shechemites into a treaty of peace and then they executed their revenge for what they did to their sister? Revenge. Now, as as human beings made in God's image, the law of God written on our hearts, those who possess a conscience, we all have this internal desire for justice, especially when wrongdoing has been done. We want to see justice happen. And we absolutely hate it when justice is not um, met out for someone's wrongdoing. And so the sinful part of us often wants to take justice into our own hands and execute our own revenge. I don't know if someone's ever hurt you enough that you've had that dark moment in your mind where you've thought to yourself, how could I get them back? How could I enact my own revenge? It's interesting. God knows that that's something that's tempting and alluring to us. And that's why two different places in Scripture we are told very explicitly, vengeance is mine and I will repay. Vengeance is not our doing as God's people. It is his doing. And in the passage that's before us tonight, it's where the Lord avenges for what has been done against his people, the Midianites. You see, to understand this passage, you can't just read it on its own. You've got to read it in the big picture storyline. Now, before I I go back and tell you the story that that forms the context in the book of Numbers, I need to go even further back and tell you the storyline of the Bible. We begin the, the Bible with the story in Genesis of a very good God who made this very good world and placed us in it so that we might enjoy the right relationship with him. But then we, in Adam, turned our backs on God, vandalized the peace and the shalom of the of paradise. And God made a promise that he would repay. The devil, his head would be crushed. And from Eve, a descendant would come who would do that, the Messiah. And in Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abraham, I'm calling you. I'm going to take you to a land that I'm going to give you as your inheritance. I'm going to give you a nation that will number the stars in the sky or the sand in the seashore. 
I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless all those who bless you. And if anyone curses you, I will curse them. But Abraham, you need to know my purpose in blessing you is that so that through you all the nations of this earth will be blessed. And then you keep on reading through Genesis and God eventually begins to make his people into this great nation. He makes good on this promise because from Jacob there is Joseph and Joseph takes the people and it leads them virtually to Egypt. And 400 years in Egypt, the story of Exodus, the people of God are made into this huge nation that number way more than a million. For 400 years in slavery and bonds, then God leads them out. He leads them out in that great act of redemption where he causes his justice to fall on their enemies. And he takes them towards the promised land. He gives them the law at Mount Sinai. And he says to you, I'm giving you this land that I promised. And we studied the story in Numbers. God's people come to the very edge of the promised land. They send in the spies. Two reports come back. A good report, a bad report. And God's people go with a bad report. Instead of going forwards in faith, they go backwards in unbelief. And so God says to his people who sinned against them, okay, as a just God, none of you will enter the promised land. For 40 years you will wander in the wilderness and you will die in the wilderness because of your disobedience. And God, as he leads the people around the wilderness, he's teaching them more and more about his character, that he is a God who is holy, but he's also a God who has made it possible for sinful people to have relationship with him through the means of sacrifice. And and we've walked through numbers and we've seen that. But then as we picked up our series of numbers earlier this year, we studied that passage in Numbers chapter 25. It was the very end of the first generation of God's people in the 40th year. And remember Balaam, who was hired by Balak for the Moabites and the Midianites to curse God's people. He could not curse God's people, but instead, every time he spoke, he spoke a word of blessing upon God's people. And Numbers chapter 25, Balaam concocted a plan that would lead God's people to be seduced into sexual immorality and then ultimately given to idolatry, yoking themselves with the bale of Peor. And at the very end of Numbers chapter 25, God said to Moses, make sure you harass the Midianites. Make sure you address the Midianites. Now, because of God's people's disobedience in Numbers 25, God struck down 24,000 in a plague. Can I just say this? God's judgment always begins with his people. Only because of the acts of young Phineas, the man of the second generation, did God stop that plague. Well, you might have thought that that story had come to an end with Numbers chapter 25. It, it hadn't. God resumes the story here in Numbers chapter 31. And it's time for God to be faithful to his promise. Those people who curse his people, God will deal justly with. And here we're studying a passage where we see God taking vengeance. 
And it's so fitting that Numbers 31 is placed here because we've just studied a chapter previously, chapter 30, on oaths and vows and promises. And God is going to show himself faithful to the promise he made to Abraham. Curse his people and you will be cursed. Now, as we come to this passage, I just want us to walk through it. But the thing that I want you to see as we work our way through it is that the caricatures that are given about this passage is that God's people, Israel, are involved in ethnic cleansing. God's people, Israel, are these megalomaniacs who just kill and then take their own sex slaves. And all of these sort of stories have been built up around this passage. God is a moral monster. Who could believe in such a God as this? Let's just walk through this passage and see a perfectly just God and also an incredibly merciful and loving God. So preparation for war is given in verses 1 through 4. The Lord spoke to Moses. He said, avenge the people of Israel and the Midianites. Afterwards, Moses, you shall be gathered to your people. This is going to be Moses' last main act before he dies. Moses was supposed to harass the Midianites. It seems that Moses had forgotten about that, but God had not forgotten that wrongdoing has to be dealt with. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. Let's be very clear. What is happening in this passage is God executing his judgment. This isn't just the Israelites with a personal vendetta. This is the Lord taking his vengeance. This is God being faithful to his promise to his people. Now, do you remember when the census was taken in Numbers 26, how many men within Israel were eligible to fight? 600,000 and a few more. In this passage, are 600,000 men sent fight? No. Read what we look at verse 4. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to war. Twelve tribes, one thousand, twelve thousand men to fight. So this isn't the whole of Israel. This is a special unit with a special task, very focused task. They are to go and make war with Midian. Now who are they going to fight against? The Midian military. Men of war. How do we know that? Because trumpets will be sounded to signal we are coming and we are going into battle with you. I need you to see that this is a righteous war. God's people are faithful to the command to take a thousand men from each tribe. And then verse 6 we read, And Moses sent them to war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets for the alarm in his land. This is a sanctified war. This is a holy war. The Ark of the Covenant, the vessels of the temple, will go with the people. Phinehas, from the second generation, whose father, Eleazar, is the high priest, he will go with the men into war. Now, one of the things we know is that Levites could not fight. So he's not going into this war to fight. He's going into this war to remind God's people that God goes with them. 
This is God executing his vengeance. The reason Phineas was going and not Eleazar is because when men go into war, they will become unclean. And the high priest needs to be there to make them clean on their return from the battle. So you see this? This is 12,000 men going to war with the Midianites. Now remember, they're going to war with the Midianites who live in the plains of Moab. The Midianites and Moab, Moabites had formed an alliance. So, by the way, in this war, they're not going to kill every single Midianite man that exists. They're scattered in various regions. This is the men who live in the quarter of the plains of Moab and who had some involvement with the seduction of the Israelite men into sexual immorality and then into idolatry. And we see that, verse 7. They warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male, meaning every soldier that fought against them. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain, Evi, Evi, Rechem, Zar, Har, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. That's very, that's very intentional that we're told that detail because if you remember back to chapter 25, when God executed his judgment on his own people, do you remember what he told Moses to do? Bring out all the leaders, all the chiefs. Those who are responsible for the wrongdoing must pay. And so those who were responsible among the Midianites are killed in this battle. The leaders. And we're even told there in verse 8, and they also killed Balaam, the son of Boar, with the sword. The man who had concocted the plan to seduce the Israelites because he could not curse them is killed. God's justice is executed. Now, verse 9 is clear what happened. So this is the warfare. We've had the plans to warfare. Now, this is the reality of the warfare. As they defeat the Midianite military, verse 9, and the people of Israel took captive of the women of Midian and their little ones, and they, took, and they took as plunder all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods. So they take all that is left. They kill the men, and they take the women, the children, and all of their herds. Now, we know from Deuteronomy that God had made it very clear to his people that the prisoners of war, your captives from warfare, were to be treated with the utmost dignity and respect. God's people were a holy people. God's people's ultimate purpose was to be a light to the nations, to showcase the character of God. And so they take all this people and these men of war on their way out they burn all their encampments and they bring all of the women all of the children and all of the herds with them back to Israel back to the camp of the Israelites now as they arrive as they're approaching Moses and Eleazar they leave the encampment and they come outside the camp to meet them And that's of course because these men who've just been involved in war have handled dead bodies. These men have handled unclean peoples and unclean articles. These men are ceremonially undefiled. And so they have this meeting outside the camp. And from verse 
13 through verse 20, we now get Moses' instructions to these men. And it seems strange because you would expect Moses to rejoice. They've obeyed his command. But that's not Moses' reaction. Look at verse 13 with me. Moses and Eliezer the priest and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of the thousands and the commanders of the hundreds who'd come from service in the war. Moses said to them, have you let all the women live? Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now we don't know how Moses knows this, but what he's learned, what he knows is, he knows that the women who are standing before him, within that large number of women, there are women who came in the camp of the Israelites, seduced the men in sexual immorality, and then led them to yoke themselves to Baal of Peor. These weren't innocent women. These were women who acted treacherously against the Lord. 24,000 Israelites died because of the actions of these women. Moses says, the Lord is taking vengeance on evil and wrongdoing. And so he said, behold, these women are to be killed. Now, the text doesn't tell us we don't know how it came about, but the women who were identified as those who, who, who had a role in seducing the men and leading them into idolatry, those women were killed. This is where we get to the, the most difficult verse. Verse 17, Now therefore kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who is known man by lying with him. Moses, this is where he's described as the moral monster of the Old Testament. Because people read this and they say, how could Moses ever say, wipe out women and children? The women who were to be killed were the women who had lain with men, meaning the Israelite men. The little ones who were to be killed were the males Males who would be Midianites, who would know that their calling in life was to rise up and fight the Midianites' enemies, which were now very clearly the Israelites. Moses says, we need to kill the women who have acted treacherously and the little boys who will be a future threat to Israel. This is God's justice. Now we read this, and there is something perhaps in all of us that kind of recoils. But we are dealing with the perfectly righteous acts and punishment of God. We don't stand over God. God stands over us. And God is executing his judgment because of the way the enemies of God's people had led them astray to act treacherously against him. This is God executing his just judgment. Now, in the midst of God's perfectly righteous judgment, I need you to see that there is mercy, there is grace, and there is love. 
And the irony of this is that this next verse is often presented as being one of the most vile verses in the Old Testament. Verse 18. But all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. And everyone says, that verse says that the Israelites under Moses' command following the Lord were to take these women, these young virgins, as sex slaves. That's not what the text says. The text recognizes that the most vulnerable among those who were left were the young women. In that ancient Near Eastern world, they would be completely and utterly destitute. No protection, no security. Any nation that found them wandering in the wilderness would deal with them as they pleased. Moses says, these women are to be taken as plunder. God's already given very clear commandments in Deuteronomy of how people who are taken as plunder are to be treated with dignity and respect. They are to be incorporated into the covenant community of God to be taught the ways of Yahweh to become themselves God-fearers so that they themselves would know the blessing that God has intended for the nations of the earth. This is God being faithful to his promise. In you, Abraham, my desire is that the nations of this earth would be blessed. The Midianites would come to know me, Yahweh, and serve me and love me. And here they're being incorporated into the covenant community to that end. And the reason we know that this is an act of mercy and grace is because of what it says in verse 19 through 20. In camp outside the camp for seven days, whoever of you has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. Now they're really... uh, Thoughtful students of God's word will remember Numbers chapter 19, third day, seventh day. Remember the ashes of the red heifer that were for the cleansing of people who touched dead corpses? This is it coming into play. This is what the high priest would do. He would cleanse them with the ashes of the heifer so that these people could come back into the camp. Not only them, every garment, every article of skin, all work of goats hair, every article of wood. And not only that, as we read on, Every single thing that they brought into that camp, all of the plunder, that's verses 21 through 24, was to be cleansed in order to come into the camp, including these young women. They are to be part of God's holy people. God acts justly and God acts mercifully because that is who our God is. And God's purposes are to bless his people and to curse those who cursed his own people. So we've looked at the preparation for war. We've looked at the reality of war. We've looked at some of the aftermath of the war. Now we deal with what happens with all the plunder of the war. Now, in verse 25 onwards, they took count of all of the plunder of man and beast. And they brought it. And here's, in essence, let me just summarize what God said. He says, everything that's been taken, and it numbered uh, 675,000 sheep, verse 32, you can see there, and so on, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, 32,000 persons in all, women who had not known man by lying with him. What was to happen with all that plunder? 
half of it, just think about this, half of that, divide that in half, half of it was to be given to the 12,000 men who fought. Other half of it was to be given to the rest of the nation of Israel. And we know there are 600,000 fighting men. The nation of Israel numbers way over a million. So the other half is to be given to that huge portion. 0.2%, if you work out the maths, if you read this passage diligently, of the half that was given to the men of war was to be given to the priests as an offering. And the reason it was to be given to the priests is because remember, the priests don't have an inheritance when they get into the land. And so God was providing for his people and setting it up such that the people, that the priests would receive re, um, compensation. And remember, El, uh, young Phineas had gone with them, and so in many ways he was being taken care of. Then, with the other half of the plunder that's given to the whole nation, 2%, not 0.2%, but 2% of it was to be given to the Levites. The distinction between the priests and the Levites. And to them, they were to receive 2% of the half that was given to the nation of Israel. And that, again, was to compensate them. Because just like the priests, they have no inheritance. This is the means by which God was taking care of them. I need you to see, we see the gracious care of God for his people. And he takes care of those who are serving them in the ways of holiness. This is a righteous God. This is a gracious God. This is a generous God. This is a God who provides for his people as they prepare for the promised land. Now in verse 48, which we read, and into verse 49, one of the greatest revelations takes place. This commanders of the army do a head count of the soldiers who had fought. And the most incredible thing happens. They count up every single man. And it turns out not one man who was involved in battle from Israel died. Israel had no casualties. Because God had acted in power and persevering his people. Because this was God acting out his own vengeance on his people's enemies. God had used these men as instruments in his hand to accomplish his purposes, to execute his judgment. Now what you need to see here is the men are so thankful are so overflowing with gratitude that God has preserved them and protected them and kept them all intact. That they do the thing that is appropriate. They offer a sacrifice. Now according to Exodus chapter 30, whenever anybody counts the people up, takes a census, it is appropriate after the census to give a thanksgiving offering. Exodus chapter 30. This is kind of what you expect to read that they offered. That's not what it says. So look at what it says, verse 50. And we have brought the Lord's offering, what each man found, articles of gold, armlets and bracelets, signets, rings, earrings, beads. Why? To thanks, to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. Now, just if you were to do the calculation of how much all of the gold that they brought to the Lord... 
it, it's, it's like these men take a, I mean, a, a massive amount of that which they'd taken and they give it all back to the Lord. And it's a ransom offering, it's an atonement offering, and it's because these men who'd fought, there's two arguments. Some people say when they'd thought, they realized that perhaps their sinfulness was engaged in that warfare and they therefore wanted to make atonement for their sinful actions. But this was God executing his just and righteous punishment. It's more seemingly that as these men fought and as they executed the judgment of God and they won this victory and they realized that all men had been protected by God, they realized it is only because of the mercy of God that we live. It is only because of the grace of God that we are his people. It is only because of what God has promised to do for us. One day he will send us a savior who will make atonement for our sins. That the only appropriate response is we seek to live in right relationship with God. The God who is just and righteous and gracious and merciful is for us to give him an offering. Because our God is worthy of our praise and worship, and our lives. These men might have given this huge amount of gold, but it's not by silver or gold that these men would ultimately be redeemed by, but the precious blood of the Lamb. But they'd recognized they wanted to give God their all, because this was a God who clearly given his all to them by keeping them and preserving them. And so as we come to the end of this passage, in many ways we, we stand back and we see, we see a God of justice and perfectly righteous God, a God of grace and mercy. But all of this is a perfect picture of God being faithful to the promise he had made. His plan and purpose is to bless all the nations of the earth through the Lord Jesus Christ who would shed his blood to atone for our sins so that we could be brought in to right relationship with God. The other thing that this passage does is it gives us a preview of Judgment Day. God will execute his righteous judgment on those people who are his enemies. He will deal as he sees fit. This is a preview of the God who is righteous and who is just and who will have vengeance because vengeance is ultimately his because he is God. And you know, for God's people at this, in, at this moment in their history, preparing to enter the promised land, this must have been the biggest bolster of confidence for their faith. Our God is faithful to his promises. Our God is faithful to his character. Our God has bided for us to be in right relationship with him. Our God has made it possible so that we will not experience his judgment, but will experience nothing but his generosity. Grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy.
And so as we respond to this, the God who is just and the God who is merciful, our appropriate response is to put our faith and trust in Jesus if we haven't yet. And if we have, to recognize we could never repay God for what he's given us. He's withheld his justice, but he, the just God and the justifier of the wicked, has executed his judgment for our sins upon his son. Our right response is to give him our all. Let's pray. Our Father, in view of your mercies, in view of what you've done for us, we, we do want to give you our lives. We do want to give you our all. God, in light of who you've shown us, you've shown yourself to be tonight in your word, the God who is just and the God who is merciful, we pray that we would never, ever stand in judgment over you, but let you do as you please and you stand in judgment over us and you show us that you are perfectly righteous. You're meticulous in your care and your commitment to your character and your promises and to your ways and to your purposes. And we pray that God, even in these days, that we would be a people who, when we see the fact that we live in an unjust world where there are so many injustices and so much wrongdoing, we thank you that we can rest confident that there is coming a day where you will execute perfect justice. And God, we marvel that the fact that we are those who deserve your just wrath, but because we have found shelter in Jesus, there is no condemnation. There is nothing but safety and security for us. And so we pray that as your people, we would rejoice. And in these days, you would use us. Use us to be those who are a blessing to the nations of the earth. That many would come in among us and join us and become worshippers of you, glorious God. And it's in your son's precious name that we pray this. Amen.